Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Elaine Davies, who's the founder of New Road Property. We talked to Elaine about her past as a high-flying international real estate agent and author and her transition to a real estate buyer's agent. We have a chat to her about things that untrained buyers do and what people can look out for during their negotiations. We talk to her about her formula and asset selection and what she thinks is the best strategy to find high growth properties and all sorts of insights into what she sees for the market at the moment and the opportunities for investors. It's a great interview with Elaine and she's a lot of fun. Here's Elaine. Elaine Davies, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We're going to have a lot of fun in our little isolation bunkers. Indeed. Can you kick us off with who you are and what you specialize in? Who am I? That is such a good question. So in a, on a business sense, I'm um, a, a property, a residential property buyer. And that means people come to me with their briefs or what they think they want to buy. I analyze those briefs and massage it until we get to a point that we know what they can afford and what they can really buy. And then I go off and find that property, be on market or off market, do all the due diligence, do all the negotiating with the agents and um, either buy it or we move on to the next one. On a personal level, I'm a mum to an 18-year-old. I'm obviously all the uh, mother-sister friend. And, um, yeah, I've been living in Australia for quite a while now. I was about to um, tee off on your dodgy accent, but we'll come <laughs> to that in a second. Um, can you tell us what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Do you know, um, well, yeah, <laughs> I had the Bay City Rollers. Right. Donny Osborne. Wow. I'm, fu- I'm showing my age, aren't I? This is a sneaky way to find out how old it's, I am. Yeah, there's and, no Justin Bieber in this one. No, that's right. <laughs> and Farrah Fawcett Major, that famous one of hers when she's leaning forward and, yeah. So I was all about Charlie, Charlie's Angels. Loved those girls. Beautiful. There you yeah, go. Yeah. And what about property? How did you get started in property and what was your first investment? So I am um, from a farm. And I was living in West Wales, uh, working for Marks and Spencers in a little um, market town called Carmarthen. And there was this three-story house that was has been split into three apartments, and it was £9,000. And I bought that. And wow. a few years later, the motorway came in and all that happened. And, uh, yeah, so I bought that, and then I sold it, you know, Oh gosh, I probably I moved out home very young. I probably bought that when I was 17 and then when I left the UK uh in my mid 20s I sold it then. Yeah, wow. And how did you do out of it? I doubled. I got 18,000 pounds. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, Beautiful. it was a lot of money back then. Yeah. Back 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 in the uh, stone age. Yeah, well, I mean, be be fair to yourself. I know oh, okay. it might not be Justin Bieber, but you've still got a lot of life in you. Okay, <laughs> yes, I age them. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get back to this uh this dodgy accent yeah. uh, makes me sort of crave a, a crumpet and a and a earl grey yeah uh, we're so we're, we're talking technically welsh or have you got a bit of did, did the english sort of vernacular eat into you as well i'm as welsh as as they come both right both mum and dad are both uh farming uh, west wales sheep farmers i speak welsh i couldn't speak english till i went to school 
So I'm as I'm as Welsh as they come. So there's no scones and tea. You'd have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what you do the Welsh do? Tea for sure, strong tea. tea and Welsh cakes, which are yummy. And too many consonants in their words, like words with fourteen Ks and Hs mm. and that sort of thing. Am I right? Well, there's no there's no K in the Welsh alphabet, so wrong, not then? one K. So the K is the C sound K, and the, yeah, right. Yeah. But it's a it's a handful, isn't it's it? It's a handful, but it's a handful, and um, and really hilarious. Like I have a friend who is obsessed with me saying the Welsh alphabet, and every time she has a couple of wines, she goes, "Elaine, Elaine, Elaine, say the Welsh alphabet for us." Wow, <laughs> yeah, that that's got to be in the like the DVD extras of this interview, surely. Well, I'm happy to give you the Welsh alphabet if you want it. <laughs> Get- <laughs> Rattle, rattle us off, rattle us off a couple. Okay. Wow. It's it actually sounds, with all due respect, like you're the one that's been on the source. <laughs> that's right. I love the ending of it. Ooh, uh. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like they gave up and went. Oh, you know, look, we've got we've got tea to drink. Let's just wrap it up. <laughs> just wrap it up. With, <laughs> that's the W and the Y, obviously. Ooh, uh. Wow, look at that! Bit of culture for our listeners today. <laughs> um, now let's talk about your career. So you became a pretty high flying international real estate agent. Was real estate always what you wanted to do after you doubled your money on that little Welsh apartment complex? Do you know, like so many real estate agents, I did kind of fall into it. But in hindsight, it was always the perfect thing for me because it gives freedom. You're out, you're looking at properties and you're dealing with amazing people, mostly amazing people, different all the time. It, it changes as the transaction moves forward. Obviously, there's there's a path to go through and sometimes you might get stuck in the middle and there's, you know, kind of heavy, serious conversations to be had. And it's my job to move those forward. But um, it turned out to be the perfect, perfect business for me. I love it. I love helping people. And I love, as I say, you know, being out and about and uh, meeting new people. And, and that's what gives me um, a, a lot of energy. And, and the negotiating, you know, whether it was for the vendor when I was a real estate agent or now for my buyers. And you were pretty good at it too, right? Like there's there's a few certificates along the way. Thank you. I like to think so, but I'm Welsh, so I never have tickets on myself. <laughs> there you go. But That's you can good. say that. Thank you. <laughs> so you, you actually, after sort of being involved in real estate, you shifted gears uh, into publishing. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about that side of your life and, and, and when you sort of were, you know, on velvet galloping across the field with your two-book publishing yeah. deal? Those were the days. So when I came from Asia, so I, I was working for Richard Ellis, in um, Hong Kong and Bangkok. And when I arrived in Australia, I I just, I didn't want to work Saturdays. So I thought, right, what else can I do? And as a, I had been doing a little bit of publishing in, in the UK and I kind of winged it really and got into um, being the national advertising manager at Pacific Publications. But through that and a number of, of meetings and stories later. Yes, I got a I got a publishing deal and I decided to take a punt and leave my full-time job and and I actually have never worked for anyone. Oh yes, I have, sorry. 
it was a very long time before I worked for somebody again. And and Ticker Pant, and it really paid off. And as you say, I then was a published author with Pan Macmillan. I was on Beauty and the Beast television. I was on set, set, Family Circle television. I was on Qantas Radio. I was on so many radio stations. I was I was a bit of an it girl and um, around town, but um, then I got burning a hole in the red carpet. I said I was, I was, <laughs> and um, you know what it's like before you have children. You have all the energy in the world to do that, and that's what you're doing. You're going out and. But um, yeah, so I, I was living, really living the life and working very hard, but earning, earning good money. And this is why I'm so passionate about what I do, especially for women in their late 20s and mid 30s. I did exactly what I try and get people not to do now. I was earning really good money and I was spending really good money. And, mm. you know, I, th- I look back at that period in my life. And I just think, oh, my goodness. I remember going to the bank and, and there being heaps more money in there. And I mean heaps than I thought. And I'm, oh, that's good. And it didn't occur to me to put it down in a deposit, even though I'd bought that other one when I was really young. It just, it's fun. yeah. As fun as it is to sort of go out and smash your espresso martini mm. personal best, it's a bit It's a bit like the, the guys that find themselves in these high-paid mining jobs and they get all the toys and that sort of stuff thinking it'll last forever, right? Yeah, and, and it doesn't. I am testament to it. It does not last forever. So when you've got your money, you've got to think like an investor and make it work for you, not you work for your money. Well, speaking of which, you, you share a very, very honest overview of yourself on your website and talk about sort of mm-hmm. being a high flyer and then mm. falling in love and then mm. it seemed like there was only a couple of words more before divorce courts and living across the other side of the world from family and custody mm. and finance battles. Mm. Uh, I hope it's not pouring some cayenne pepper in wounds Good or Lord, anything. No. But, it's such a long um, time ago. Yeah. I'm very interested to hear the story of that um, and how buying a, a dingy apartment at, I mm. guess, what you might describe as a, a lower point in life actually landed you a job and a, and a, a new sense of direction. Yeah, okay, thanks. No, I, re- I really like sharing the story because I was kind of getting a bit long in the tooth by now. So, you know, you should have. I should have been really at a stage in my life where things were beginning to come together. And actually, they fell apart spectacularly around 38, 40. And um, so I came out of, we had a really beautiful sandstone house in Balmain. And I came out of that with, you know, a certain, we both came out with a certain amount of money. I put mine into buying, as you say, a really dark Meriton apartment going, going from this stunning house with harbour views. It was just, you know, what I came out with. But I put every cent into it, which means I didn't have any cash flow. So the cash was really tight. And uh, I lived there for 10 years. So from, from when my son was 2 to 12, we lived in that apartment. And I've actually got really fond memories of it, as you can imagine. But the second the market then started to pick up in about 2012 or early 2013, I did, I sold it and, you know, and that's another story. But that was a really tough time. And um, I didn't realize this was in my website. But, yeah, the real estate agent I bought (laughs) the apartment from kept saying to me, come and work for me, come and work for me, which is Elja Hooker here in Balmain. So that's how I kind of veered my way back into real estate. It was, you know, I had a bit of a gap from real estate. And then, you know, I said to him, I've actually got experience. It's what I used to do in Asia. And, gosh, that was, what, 16 years ago, more, you know, a mm. long time ago now. So I went to work for him. But it was tough because, uh, by the way, the custody and the and the financials wasn't um, 
it was easy. We just said, look, week on, week off. The problem was I put my money into an apartment and my ex-husband spent all his. So it was later the problems came because he didn't have any money and I had assets, you know. But, uh, you know, he spent his money. What do you do? And that's what I tell people not to do. And that's something else I'm really passionate about. When people come across these lump sums, which happens through life every now and again, you've got to do something with it. And thank God I did. Because now I have my, you know, I have my little Hansel and Gretel weatherboard cottage, pink and white in, <laughs> in Roselle with my now grown-up son. And it all worked out really well. But yeah, it was really, really tight there for quite a f- number of years. You're setting a beautiful setting or backdrop <laughs> for these cups of tea as well. Oh my gosh, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know that you're very passionate about helping people that are in a similar situation. Mm. And obviously you're honest in your assessment of the way that you blew cash instead of squirreling it away. But mm. the, the, it's certainly the case in Australia and perhaps broader that women especially can find themselves very financially exposed after separation, especially if they've been in, uh, you know, raising a family. Mm. We, we often hear about the disparity between super balances with men and, and women. Is, is that something that you are seeing out there a lot? Oh, every family, every family. Like, so, you know, it's not unusual for a husband to have like 200,000 in his super and the wife to have 20,000. And that's not fair because the, the family home is a joint asset. You know, they buy it together and it comes up together. And the super should be the same, I think, especially for people who are renting. It's like that's what they've got is their super. So it's, it's yeah, it's super common um, for, for women's super to be massively lower. And it's not just my passion. It's a fact that uh, female homelessness is, is the highest um, and, and is still growing. So it's about 40%. Yeah, wow. It's I mean, really I- scary, yeah. And it's those women in their 20s and 30s that are earning all that money before before they get married, before they have children. Let's do something young and just sit and forget, you know. Where do you sort of rate the state of financial literacy in Australia? That's a really, really good question. I think the literacy itself is good, but we have a tall poppy syndrome. And so I talk a lot about mindset as well. So that's, you know, when I was in publishing, that's what I got into. That's what my first books were about. Um, so it's not the literacy so much. It's if you haven't got the mindset, doesn't matter how much skill set you've got, it's academic, yeah? Yeah. So I think it's, and particularly for women, it's it's a bit embarrassing to get ahead. It's a bit embarrassing to say, look, I'm not going to come out for those cocktails because I'm actually saving up. And, you know, people really put pressure on you to go, oh, don't be so boring. And, yeah, yeah. you know, so it's not the literacy per se. We kind of know what to do. And, I, and I'm actually uh, doing a course on it. Uh, I'm putting a course together. That's what I'm doing with my COVID time um, on this <laughs> now <laughs> too. Good, nice and productive. Yeah. Um, so I think the literacy is okay. We all know that, you know, buy investments, sit on them and wait for them to come out, but we just don't do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, uh, I think right now at the moment, now there might be a little bit of a delay with this coming out, but there's a Netflix show, number one is the Michael Jordan story, and of course <gasps> he's talking about it now with his cigar and his in his scotch, but at that point in time he was, he was starting with the Chicago Bulls and they were apparently a pretty wild crew, but he didn't drink at all. 
Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of peer pressure, but if you if you want to be the best at something and if you really want to succeed, there's a lot of sacrifice that has to go with it, right? Look, I agree. And I'm not saying that we all want to be the best at this. I'm just saying we want to buy something. And, um, and that's where goal setting comes in. Because if you set a goal, it gives you and other people the ability to say, you know what, I'm not coming out tonight, not just because I'm just saving. I've actually set a goal and in three months' time, I'll be there and then, look, let's revisit spending this money. It actually gives you detachment when you set goals with a date. And um, it, it allows you, as I say, to quite clearly say to other people, I've got a goal. This is what's important to me right now. And that's easier for them to hear and understand. Then, um, And, yeah, sure, we'd all like to be Michael Jordan, but... You know, we don't have to be Michael Jordan to buy an investment property. Yeah. Yeah, not even Scotty Pippen. <laughs> not um, even Scotty Pippen, whoever he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll have to catch up on that. Yeah. So uh, uh, have you have you always sort of been programmed like that? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the sort of bounce back with yourself, mm. how you utilised your, obviously you had some pretty solid real estate skills. Uh, how did you utilise those and, and investing in property to bounce back? I think I all have always had that bounce back. So, you know, I, I know I have a certain type of personality because when I left Wales, nobody was leaving, you know. And, um, you know, when I went to London, I still hadn't been to Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales. So I've always taken kind of big strides. And when I moved to Hong Kong, it was, a, you know, obviously a, a different world for me too. So I have always had that uh, one step in front of the other mentality. And I remember when I – and I – Honestly, I was, it was a terrible part. But I remember thinking, this isn't it. This is not my life. This is not my beautiful life. <laughs> um, yeah, I just remember thinking that, right, what, what do I do now? And I had to kind of catch my breath, and that took a while. And, um, yeah, I just knew. I knew that wasn't it. I didn't know how, what it was going to look like, but I knew it didn't look like that, my life. Where, where did you get to the point in your real estate career where you were starting to really see uh, and feel empathy for the buyers that you were negotiating against as, say, a, a selling agent? And, and when did you want to when, – when did you really start getting interested in evening up the odds for the buyers and advocating for them? Well, I've been a buyer's agent for a really long time. I was one of the first. There is a kind of a group that was before me, but um, I'm definitely one of the first. So it started, you know – early um I just so I'll give you an example of what somebody actually a lot of people said this to me they'd say Elaine I, I can go up another 20,000 but don't tell the vendor well you have told the vendor yeah I am the vendor the vendor's paying exactly. me two percent of of their of the worth of their property to get the best price possible. Whatever you say to the to the real estate agent, you might as well put the vendor's face on, on his or hers. So and that's what they would say to me. So I would then do nothing all day, you know, kind of or, or work on something else. And then I'd come back afterwards and go, look, I tried for that 15,000. But honestly, if you've got that 20,000 on you, we can close this deal today. You know, I, I hadn't even been to the vendor. But that's your and, and and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because your job is to work for the vendor, not for the buyer. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that buyers wouldn't naturally be a little bit cagey. But clearly, there's a there's this idea that if you want to buy a house, you know, you go to a, a real estate agent or you call one up on the phone, and say I'm looking for X Y Z, and if mm. if they're a good agent, they will help you. But at the end of the day, if it's one of their listings, they're mm. not going to help you any more than 
sort of aligns with their interests and the interests of the vendor, are they? I think it I think it depends on the real estate agent's personality. I mean, I'm a bit of an open book, so maybe I came across as somebody and it's not that I wasn't trustworthy, as my alliance is laid with my clients, you know. And so also to answer your question, I just didn't like the way that, you know, when you walk into reception, that beautiful marble desk and those trendy red chairs. And then you kind of walk on the back and where I worked was actually an old Commonwealth Bank building and it hadn't been refurbished in years. And the, you kind of felt you were walking into this gray, dusty old place where suddenly all the negativity piled in and, and the discussion around the buyers is what I really didn't like. It was like, oh, they're idiots. Oh, they're this. Buyers are liars. There's a lot of vocabulary that goes with it. And I'm, I'm a naturally positive person. I don't like that negativity in my life. So. Yeah. I just didn't think that was fair and I didn't think I just I, I just didn't like it. Yeah. Can you can you give us some examples about how real estate agents do run rings around buyers that are buying a property for themselves and find themselves negotiating with someone who's you would think a, a trained negotiator? Yeah. Well, obviously the big one is well, I do have another buyer. And it's a tricky one because they, they may, they may have another buyer, but it's, it's a pretty standard line. It's, there's always another buyer, you know, and, um, and this other buyer is willing to move quickly, do this. Then, you know, when it comes to negotiations, they'll often, a real estate agent will often say, no, we're going to auction. We're not taking offers. Well, that's not his decision, his or her decision. I use it. I'll use the pronoun he, uh, that's not his decision. So, a buyer can absolutely come in with an offer. But when I talk about offers, I'm talking about unconditional offers on contract with a 10% deposit. Yeah. And, and so you have to ignore that. You have to, you have to accept that underquoting is an absolute thing. It real estate does not work without underquoting. It's watch it, uh, quote it low, watch it go, quote it high, watch it die. And, if somebody does quote a property at the price it's actually valued at, buyers will think, oh, my gosh, it's another 10%. So real estate agents are a bit stuck, really, because Sydney, or I don't know about the rest of Australia, is really trained for underquoting. But a new buyer coming in, they just get stung. And so you have to understand that underquoting is a real thing. What the agent says on money has to be white noise, and you have to do your own price research. And doing your own price research means hitting the streets, going to other open for inspections. Yep. I would have thought that agents would be likely to inflate the estimate of the value to the vendors in the sense that, well, agent X says my property's worth a million, mm. agent Y says it's 1.1, they must know a little bit more or be more enthusiastic about my property so I would go with them. Does does that happen on the vendor side and then, then the, the price range is quoted differently to the buyer or do they underquote to vendors as well? Okay, there's a few questions in there. So, um, <laughs> sorry I'll, about that. That's I'll, my trademark. <laughs> I'll start with. I'm just jotting it. I'll start with the underquoting to the vendor. So, um, no, there's usually not underquoting to the vendor, but there is overquoting, as you say, an, um, a real estate agent going in and saying it's worth more than it is, and we in the trade we call that buying the listing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got a really desperate real estate agent and a really greedy vendor, you can have a property that goes to market that's instantly overpriced. Now that's 
fantastic for a buyer's agent that knows what's going on. Like, you know the value, a property hits the market, and you instantly think, you're dreaming, you've overpriced it, you're going to stuff up the campaign from day one, let's sit back and see what happens. And that might be the one that you go to auction on. Um, That's really interesting because you're not the first buyer's agent that I've heard say that they love negotiating on a property that's overpriced. Naturally, I would be thinking this is going to be a nightmare because the expectations of the owner are so high. However, it's it's very negative for the vendor because the campaign will fail if it's too far above market and no one's going to want to touch it. And there's something, I think there's something that, people are a little bit scared of when they see property come on the market and, and the price comes down and down and down, mm. it's actually more negative than pricing it properly in the first place. Absolutely. It's seen as, you know, what's wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was the other part of that question? The underquoting for the vendor and what was the other yeah, part? Yeah, I was just sort of saying, do, 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 do the agents overquote to the vendor and then underquote to, to oh, the yes. people looking to buy so, the property? So the gap between what's on the agency agreement and what the buyers are told is huge. Now, it shouldn't be more than 5%, and you can report that to the Office of Fair Trading. And every now and again, especially in a boom, the Office of Fair Trading will pick on one real estate agent, and last time it was a guy from Bresick Whitney, and they'll run with it, and this poor guy gets taken through the newspapers, and it was a guy this time. Um, So the Office of Fair Trading is there, but really they're the toothless tiger. They don't, you know, what are they going to do? They say they're going to find and everything. And another tip I have is a bit antagonistic, but it does annoy me when a real estate agent says, well, on the agency agreement, I have whatever. I have a million. And I think, well, how do I know that? So I always say, okay, great. Can I have a look? Yeah. yeah. You know. I've got, <laughs> and then I've got they go, eight well, bidders on this. Point to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what are their names? demographics where do they live (laughs) exactly it's you just have to take it as white noise but if you decide you like a property you have to fight for it and part of fighting for it is letting the agent know that you're there you can be too antagonistic you know I've had many a client that's come to me and they're so angry with the process and part of what I have to do then is calm them back down and get the fire out of them and go look it's okay I know how to deal with real estate agents it's this is not going to happen you know. Here, listen to the Welsh alphabet. That'll give you a chuckle and we can bond. <laughs> That's right. Here I go. This will calm me down. Have a Welsh <laughs> What do you hear why? It sounds like we've given up. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh. yeah, exactly. So uh, let's talk about property investing. You obviously advocate for property investor clients. Mm. What's your typical investor client like and, and what are they looking for? I actually buy um, owner occupier as well because – as, as you know, I am blue chip. But so when somebody comes to me for an investment, look, I really like to buy safe stuff. And it doesn't necessarily mean massively expensive. Like I bought my own, I think I might have told you this. Anyway, I bought my own 44 square um, south facing, no balcony art deco apartment in Elizabeth Bay in 2016 and sold it for a hundred thousand more. So I bought it for about five sixty and sold it for six sixty about eight eight months later. And that's a hundred grand I wouldn't have saved, you know. So, mm. you know, you can do it. I know there's a lot of talk about banks not liking things under 50 squares, but you can go like I love I love suburbs like Hulston Park. Get a little apartment there. 
you know, it's, you can buy good stuff in Sydney. You don't have to do those off plans in Queensland, which even the developers admit you don't get capital growth. And they'll say things like, oh, well, we're not looking for capital growth. We're looking for yield. And I'm like, rubbish. Of course, we're looking mm. for capital growth. That's what wealth is. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned that you're a, you're a blue chip character, maybe in asset selection and, and personality. Um, <laughs> do, do, you see, do you see blue chip as, as the best performing areas for capital growth compared to, say, regional areas or, or, or areas in sort of the fringes of Sydney, for example? Well, the thing with hotspots, right, and regional areas tend to be hotspots. So the, the little circle of property going up starts in the city and it goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up until it gets regional but it, it the decline starts where it stops so it's the decline starts regional and goes squirreling back around till it gets to the inner city so the inner city is always safer but if you're you know you can be lucky with a hot spot look at some people made some amazing money with mining towns but some people got really stuck as well mm. so i just think for the long term a nice safe bet you know 15 Ks to the city and there's plenty you can buy. Uh, that's what I like to see. Nice and safe. Can we talk about some examples of those areas and, and obviously areas where you're transacting and, and what is it that makes those areas attractive? Okay, so I think, um, so, so I buy mostly um, inner west, eastern suburbs and lower north shore. I'm really liking the inner west because it has a train line and i honestly think if you follow that train line out anywhere because australia with a white settlement is only 200 years old we're half the age of america and like when america was 200 years years old they were in the civil war so you think you know how the suburbs have grown there our city is just going to get more and more people people are going to have to move out further and further so if you pick that train line I really believe you're going to get great capital growth. And as I, you know, I mentioned Hurlston Park, it's two up from Marrickville, I think, and one up from Dulwich Hill. And so many people haven't heard from, of it. The river's been cleaned up. It's great. I mean, I had um, a really beautiful couple. They were um, blue collar all the way. He was literally a boiler maker or cleaner or something, mechanic, and she was a nurse. And they'd been with um, a buyer's agent for two years. And after two years, the buyer's agent finally said to them, you know what, we don't really work in this price bracket, which was really horrible. And then they came to me and that week I bought them something in Hurston Park in a block wow. of six. Yeah, in a block they of six. They were probably expecting, oh, well, we'll commit to another two years. I search. know. And I took <laughs> them out in the car. Them. I, was, I was so angry. I was like, we are buying something now. And um yeah, and and that was Hilson Park, and that little apartment's done so well, and that was only two or three years ago, and I think that was under five, and I had parking, and it was easy walk to the train. Beautiful. Yeah. And how long would the commute be to say the CBD? It's it's suburb? two stops up from Marrickville, so an extra five minutes on that. Yeah. Right. There's nothing. Is there? A is there a specific formula that you follow with your typical asset selection? I do you focus on apartments rather than houses, or your growth proximity? W how would you define it? I know we've sort of talked about blue chip and mm. you know within fifteen k's of the city, but is there any anything more you can drill well, down on? Look, 
It really depends on the client. So I just had returning clients now and they're in their mid 50s and they really wanted a massive bite of the apple because they wanted this one to come up a lot in in 10 years. And I, we got a really amazing bargain for, can you believe, 2.3 million. But that's what they wanted. And uh, I got this great house in Surrey Hills. So a house is going to give you capital growth and that's what they were after. But if your cash flow isn't like these guys and the brief, once I've been on it as well, the brief is, okay, I'm willing to put a bit bit in to top up the mortgage, but not that much and I need capital growth. And absolutely, it's going to be an apartment because you're going to get better yield with an apartment. But then you have, of course, you have to look at how much the stratas are, when the strata last went up, when was their work done? Because you don't want to buy it and then suddenly be um, hammered over the head with a special levy. Of course. It's very individual. I, I really take one client by the hand and, you know, see what they need and find that. In the suburbs that you're transacting in, so inner west, uh, lower north shore, those sorts of areas, what is the the rough price for a house compared to a unit? I'm interested sort of in the idea that, mm. you know, it's very difficult to play in the house space as mm. an investor if you haven't got a million dollars to spend as a minimum. You know, that's a great question because Australia used to be all about land. You've got to buy a house, you've got to buy land. And then about 15 years ago, apartments and houses kind of caught up to each other. Suddenly apartment living became much more appealing and easy living. And also baby boomers were no longer moving out to the suburbs, which is always what happened. You were young, you lived in the city, you had children, you went out to the suburbs. So the bit, but the, sorry, not the baby boomers, the generation Xs stayed in the city and the baby boomers came back into the city. So apartments really went up. So they're on par, like a really great apartment can cost way more than a dodgy little house. Yeah. So again, you have to look at it, but, but sorry, just to finish on that. I think, obviously, if you've got a lower budget, let's look at a great apartment. And one thing I really want people to understand is you may not be able to buy your dream property now, and you have to get past that because you will get to your dream property, but it may not be this time, but we'll get there. But we want what we want now, right? That's right, but you can't have it. Oh, damn. That's going to be the quote card for this interview. (laughs) Whatever you want right now, you can't have it. Can't have it. A lot of the time you can't have it, and that's no reason to give up. That's a reason to think, right, what can I afford? Then that will come up, and we do a little stepping stone. Obviously, I'm being a little bit jocular, but there's Mm. this notion, certainly um, anyone older than the millennial category likes to bash the millennial sort of smashed avo eaters for always having the latest iPhone X Mm. or Plus or whatever it's called. Mm. But there's some truth to that, right? To, to, To get to the property that you want, if it is you know, if it is somewhat aspirational, there's got to be a sense of pleasure delay. There has to be, because otherwise you're going to end up in your mid-30s thinking, oh, my goodness, I didn't buy anything. And, but and, I'm so fashionable. But that <laughs> iPhone I had 10 years ago is still working. But I, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, it's far more satisfying to have um, financial comfort and I'm not talking freedom, I'm not talking riches, just comfort, just to feel comfortable. It's far sexier 
than brand new shoes, a car on on hock or whatever you call it on a lease. You know, it's 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 a good place to be. When we're talking about investing in apartments, can you give us a bit of an idea about the typical sort of apartment that you would like to invest in? Is it an older sort of Art Deco style property close to amenities in a small block? Is it a little bit Meriton-esque? Uh, is, is a block size important? Is the date of construction important? Or is it more about the numbers or the vibe? What would you say? Okay, well, none of those. Um <laughs> So the Art Deco apartments are getting old now. I mean, they're super pretty. And I think if you want to live in them, you know, really wonderful. And, and the Art Deco apartments that have been gutted, completely gutted and kind of redone on the inside, they're super expensive. The Meriton apartments, I guess there are some blocks around town that would be worth looking at. But, you know, what I like is your good old red brick 70s apartment block that after the atomic bomb it'll just be them and the cockroaches left <laughs> there's no um just, just utilitarian accommodation abs- that's right it was um form follows function yeah. which way whichever way around um there's no lifts there's no swimming pools it's just yeah a brick walk up and they were absolutely built to last. They were built a long time ago, so you know what you're getting, but not as long ago as the 30s. They often have parking. They're not attractive, but Sydney is made up of them, so we are used to looking at them. And that's absolutely what you need to go for. Now, is that because they're much much more likely to have modern conveniences like parking which maybe wasn't as much of a consideration when the model t was getting around and is it the bomb proof nature is is lower in expenses or 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 strata fees if it's a small sort of walk-up blocker did i get any of those yeah all all of those actually well done there we go i'm hitting my straps (laughs) next i'll try the alphabet probably (laughs) (laughs) um so they tend to be smaller blocks as well, which is great. Um, they're, they're parking. Some have parking, some don't. But I used to be so fussy about parking. Uh, but, again, Sydney and all the bigger cities are changing now. We've got all the go-gets. We've got Uber. I think we're at a tipping point where parking is going to become less and less important. Mm-hmm. So I'm not pushing people to come on, let's just find something with parking. I'm putting all the money into the apartment now. But as you say, close to public transport, walking distance to a cafe, a park, the apartment itself, nice, bright, you know, nice and light, even though that's not what I bought, but I did okay. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Can can you run us through some of the, the coaching and advocacy work that you do with buyers? Because I, I know that's a part of what you do. You're not just a, a, a buyer's agent. You actually... Um, do a lot of coaching work in helping people and we've talked a little bit about the financial side of things but but what sort of service are you running there shall I just give you an example sure yeah I think I'll give you a live example so I had this couple who were had been married about 30 years and they were really super lovely and um, they were looking for something in the Blue Mountains and which is not an area I cover and they had got to the stage where she would scream at him and say, just stop the car, I'm getting out. And he would stop the car and, you know, she would get out and slam the door. And that was their Saturdays. You know, it was really stressful for them. And an ex-client of mine said, look, I think Elaine can help you with this. So I met them. And what I do, actually, 
need to go back a step. What I do um, with my clients, whether it's coaching or, or full buyers, agent clients, if it's a husband and wife, brother and sister, parent and child, I get everyone to fill in a brief without peeking. So you fill in separate briefs and then I analyze them. And usually quite quickly, I can see where, where the blocks are. Mm-hmm. And with this couple, I, I didn't really pick it up at the time, but he said, I said, what's your timeline? He said, no rush. And she said three months. Then when, when they came and sat with me, so what I do in my coaching, I go through their briefs. We work out what they can buy. I set them on the road, you know, and, um, she was like, you know, he put so much pressure on me. I can't believe it. And I could just say to her, I said, look, he's not actually putting pressure on you. All he's doing is looking at houses and have trying to have a discussion. He's actually mm-hmm. just um, talking out loud. What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And they just clicked and something in that really resonated. There was a, quite a bit of other stuff, but that really jumped out that she felt pressurized and he'd put no, no time limit. They walked out of um, our session holding hands and they bought, I told them how to find off markets. They bought an off market. I'm not kidding, like 10 days later. And then they got me to step back in to do the negotiations, which I did completely over the phone. Wow. It's kind of like, you know, relationship counselling. And and that sounds a little bit silly, but financial stress is is a big contributor to relationship problems, right? So that must be, must be, Great to be able to step in there using your superpowers to come up to a to a I guess an outcome like that after the whole like I'll just get out here thanks but yeah. it's thirty k's walk the other way or well, I'll enjoy I'll it. get the train yeah there's a, there's a lot of um, I don't like to use the word counselling because I'm certainly not a counsellor but there's a lot of bringing people together in this and also um, bringing down frustrations around what they deem that the real estate agent has done wrong you know so you know there is a lot of and also keeping people on the on the path you know if you've missed out on a couple of properties even with the buyer's agent people become so deflated and it's very much my job to say we are fine those weren't your properties they you know it was not meant to be we we will find the perfect one and we do always find the perfect one it's the it's really the power of taking the emotion out of the situation that I think uh, certainly clouds a lot of those decisions. Speaking of um, of clouded decisions, we've everyone's been bashing this pandemic thing to death. You know mm. what to do in the midst of the pandemic and how to buy something during mm. COVID nineteen and all that sort of stuff. And and we are recording during that. And and in all honesty, I'm probably a bit guilty of hosting some events that that was sort of helping to navigate people out of that. But I guess I, I want to ask the question about where you see the opportunities for investors at the moment, but but perhaps in a, in a broad sense, you, you might be able to comment on, well, you know, right now it's anything that's Airbnb because that's going to boom or what have you. But I, I, I want to sort of think in more general terms over the long term, what, what you see is a good opportunity for investors to, to get some good growth in in the next sort of 12 to 24 months. Yeah, well, look, right now is a great opportunity. It's an, uh, if you can get the banks to lend, the problem with, let me take that back a step. Um, what's happening with lending at the moment is your pre-approval comes through and then the approval is finalised, but banks are checking in a day or two before now to make sure you're still employed. So I just want people to be aware of that. Um, but prices have come back, you know, and if you can 
work out a way to buy one now. And the real estate industry has pivoted really quickly. And so, so this is my theory on the world as a whole, if you're interested, Mike. I'm interested. Good. We've been working under an industrial revolution system since the industrial revolution. But we've been living in a digital world for probably 10, 15 years. This is making us sit up and go, actually, it's time, it's time to sit comfortably in the digital world now. It's time for bosses to trust their, their people to be at home. It's time for buyers. I, I put this up um, on some social media last week. It's actually a great time for buyers because auctions are happening in their living room. So can you imagine how much more comfortable a buyer is going to be in a living room as opposed to like in my book, I talk about auction day like Game of Thrones and it, you know, the buyers are the poor Starks from the North, you know, the innocent ones that just walk in there. But now that it's not that, it's not this incredibly sharp and slick um, auctioneer backed up by an incredibly sharp and slick um, real estate agent with, with a buyer who knows nothing about the industry, just suddenly just standing there and about to spend millions or hundreds of thousands. They're in their living room. Yeah. How good's that? Oh, by the way, please don't drink before bidding. I'm being serious. It's illegal. If you buy a house and um, you can't sign contracts or, or do anything like it, yeah. So please don't drink. Not oh, only will you contract. bid more. Yeah. It's, it's okay to bid in your underpants, but just not inebriated. That's right. So you can do half of Homer Simpson. <laughs> there's, there's another quote for the interview. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Elaine, if people are wanting to, to have a chat to you and get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? So you can find me on Facebook under New Road Property um, or my email is elaine at newroadproperty.com or you can just go onto my website and book an appointment, which is just newroadproperty.com. And even I can spell that, so that's nice and easy. And uh, as, as, as we've mentioned, there's some great material on that website as well. Uh, we highlighted some of the stories, but, um, yeah, you've, you've clearly put a lot of work into that and, and guiding people through the process and the services that you offer. So, yeah, definitely would recommend people check that out. Thank you, Mike. If, it's a pleasure. If there's one piece of advice that you could impart for property investors what would that be Elaine well I'd written a few down but I've actually already talked about the underquoting. um so I think the most important thing is to get past all the blocks that you have all the I can'ts um if I was somebody else if I earned more if I hadn't done this just put all those to one side and move forward from today and look at your money as an investment and when you're going to spend it think could I make this money work better for me in a better way than being in these shops or these bars or this restaurants till. Just start thinking like an investor. Beautiful. You can't go back in time, so there's no sense in lamenting no. financial decisions, but you can start making them today, right? Yeah, you know what Confucius said. Best mm -hmm. time to plant a tree was 80 years ago. The second best time is today. <laughs> there you go. Mm. Beautiful. I love that one. That's probably a bit better than the, than the other quote cards. Elaine, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for sharing your good humour and wisdom today. I uh, really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. And, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to working with you in the future. And, by the way, I worked with you as a client, and I think your company is amazing. You really look after people. 
that's very kind. And once again, the check's in the mail. Yeah, so. baby. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Elaine. Have a great day. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Cheers.